great. Yeah. Well, my name is Skip. I'm one. Or... <laughs> <laughs> uh, got you guys. All right, guys, give it up for Skip. Also known as Errol. <laughs> I get confused for Skip all the time. This is the first time I've confused me for Skip. Okay, well, let me just help here. If you are new, or if this is your first time, his name is Aaron Weiser. That's right. It is not Skip. My Go and give him a hand. Aaron Weiser, everybody. <laughs> My name is not Aaron Weiser. My name That's is right. Drew Simpson. I also am a pastor here. Uh, if this is your first time or you're new, we want you to feel uh, at home here and feel welcome. We would love to know that you've come. We'd love to give you a gift. Uh, the best way to do that is after the service. We have the info table over here. You can fill out a welcome card and give it in. If you do that, you get a free bag. It's from a ministry in India that we love. Uh, but we'd love to know you're here. Give you a call. Just say, thanks so much for coming. Uh, and then I think we wanted to say one of Yeah, I want to point out one, of, one guest this morning, actually two this morning. Um, a couple of you here, uh, Church on the Rock has partnered with AVM and done a couple of trips down to Sandpoint uh, to partner with a church down there, uh, pastored by Scott and Judy Morgan. Mm -hmm. So some of you have met them and served there. I just wanted to, to let you know they're with us here this morning uh, as our guests this morning. Would you guys welcome them from Sandpoint? <laughs> Really glad that you're with us. Uh, for those of you who did have a chance to meet them previously, please uh, chase them down after the service and say hello. Yeah. Okay, well. We're going to dive in. We are. We're hopping in Song of Solomon last week, right? That's right. <laughs> Could you pray that I remember? Everything. Everything, yeah, including who I am. Yes, Lord. Thank you. <laughs> Keep, take that joke all the way. Lord, just help Aaron be confident in his identity. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I'm done. Jesus, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you that we get to gather, we get to celebrate um, uh, the work that you've done uh, through us and the work that you're doing uh, through your mighty hand. We thank you, Jesus, uh, that you're present uh, in our hearts, in our families, our community, that you're working around the world, and that we get to be a part of a bigger story, a bigger narrative of how you're bringing us, humanity, close to you. Jesus, you were so good and kind to us this morning. I ask that as Aaron shares uh, from your word, that it would um, get right to our hearts, yeah. uh, that your power of your word would move in us to transform us rather than just hearing that it would be transformative, Lord. You say that your word does not return void. So Jesus, yeah. this morning, moving us through your word, I ask that you would uh, give Aaron clear articulation uh, and that you'd help him to communicate the things you've laid on his heart for us this morning. I thank you that we're here. We get to celebrate. And in Jesus' name, amen. 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 <laughs> you guys ready? I might need a minute. <clears throat> Maybe it was like a Freudian slip, you know, just with him leaving, I thought I would just like step in and be skip for a day, help sort of smooth the transition. <sighs> All right. We are going to, we're, we're actually wrapping up in two ways this morning. Uh, I'm going to wrap up our teaching in the Song of Solomon, uh, the romance book, the romantic love book of the Bible. 
but it's also going to be our last uh, Sunday in the wisdom literature. Uh, the wisdom literature, we have a couple of uh, books where there's essentially, uh, although I, I should say maybe Job is included in this in a little different way, but uh, we've spent some time in the Proverbs. We were looking at Ecclesiastes um, and then Song of Solomon, and all of these, uh, all of these books uh, sort of uncover truth uh, about how we are to live our lives uh, consistent with God's design, the way that God has made us, the way that He has made the world that we live in. Uh, these books are uh, offering to us a call to live according to His plan and His purposes. And the motivation to pursue His plan and His purposes for our lives is because God is good. Because not only is His heart good towards you, but His plans are good for you. So this morning, uh, I'm going to read you uh, just a short little passage here from Song of Solomon, chapter 8. And what we're going to do this morning, so I'm going to read this to you and then uh, just to let you know, uh, this morning I'm going to, we're going to look at some other uh, scriptures, but I'm going to take this like two verse little section and then we're going to go a number of different directions with it. This morning will feel more like a teaching, more like a class, and less like a sermon. Um, but uh, I think this will be relevant for most of you here. So, uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 8. I'm just going to read two verses. We have a younger sister, and she has no breasts. And what shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. So this is what we're going to do this morning. I want to talk this morning about what it looks like to have an active role in coaching younger people, particularly your own children, as they develop into sexually mature beings, uh, sexually mature uh, men and women. So what I'm gonna do is we're gonna talk about a couple of things generally about uh, this task, and then I'm gonna address parents specifically uh, with some input, uh, and then I'm going to address uh, our teen population that's here this morning, our young population that's here. And then I want to, I'll end sort of by backing up and addressing what it looks like for us as a church to be a healthy, life-giving community in regards to uh, sexuality. So, are you ready for that? First question I want to answer is, who is the younger sister? Let's look with a little, uh, with a little detail on who we're talking about here. Now, I've taught on this before, so some of this, if you've been around for a few years, some of this will be uh, familiar to you, it'll be a good review for you. A couple of things that we know about the younger sister, and this is basically just background information so we understand who we're talking about. Uh, the younger sister is uh, physically able or moving towards uh, uh, sexual capacity. Uh, so as a young guy or a young girl moves into, the, usually as they come into the teenage years, the pituitary gland kicks into gear, starts sending hormones to the body, which begin to prepare the body 
uh, for reproduction, uh, begin to prepare the body for sex. So this is happening. One of the things that's interesting, and there's a number of theories about what's driving this, but the uh, average onset of uh, puberty has been declining uh, for the last several years, in fact, for the last couple of decades. In the last couple of decades, the onset of puberty for young girls has, has declined by two years, which means they're going into those changes two years earlier than they were, than girls were going into those changes a generation ago. Uh, so there's, again, uh, there are some interesting theories about why that is happening. Uh, but what it means is uh, that physically the body is ready for some things or preparing itself for some things that are not necessarily things that the mind and heart are prepared for. Physically able and emotionally charged. How many of you remember my talk about the frontal lobe? Oh, yeah. Again, I said this is going to be kind of like a class. So we have this part of our brain right here. It's called the frontal lobe. And this is our rational decision-making portion of the brain. The rational decision-making portion of the brain uh, reaches full capacity somewhere between 20 and 25 years old. Which means that young people are learning to make thoughtful, intentional, purposeful decisions using those capacities of the brain. However, uh, there is a, a different part of the brain back here called the amygdala, which is sort of, uh, it kind of is the impulsive part of the brain, right? Uh, when you are dreaming, your uh, frontal lobe is asleep and your amygdala is awake which is why in your dreams you can do things that don't make a lick of sense and in your dream it does not occur to you that they don't make any sense. One of my sons was just telling me uh, not very long ago he had a dream that we were on a boat and we caught a whale shark and we were pulling eggs out of the whale shark's mouth and then the whale shark was one of his aunties, one of my sister-in-laws. Do you want to know which one? <laughs> In the dream, that makes perfect sense, right? Whale shark, now it's ante. That's what happens when the rational part of your brain is asleep and the emotional impulse part of your brain is awake. Well, uh, what new brain-based research has shown is that uh, for a young person, it's not that I don't have the capacity to make rational decisions. Young people can make rational decisions. Here's the deal. As the intensity or the emotional intensity um, of a situation increases, uh, young teens tend to, all the way through that development, uh, tend to revert to impulsive decision-making. So you understand? So as, as they're put in situations that are uh, high emotional intensity, they become less and less able to make rational decisions because they don't have full use of those capacities yet. And so um, by, by keep preventing them from being in too intense situations, they're quite capable uh, to make careful decisions depending on the environment. 
Along with this emotional development is the reality that is, as, as we move into the teen years, developing a sense of self, developing a sense of identity creates in a young person in that age a hyper need for acceptance. Um, that's when young people begin to be aware of themselves and not only just aware of themselves, but how other people view them. Physically able, emotionally charged, and moving towards mental stability. I can make good, rational decisions based upon evidence, and I can do so more consistently as I get older. Have <laughs> you ever noticed with teenagers, and this is probably more true of teenage boys, uh, the more that you add to the group, the lower the capacity for rational behavior, right? So that's who we're dealing with. That's the younger sister. <clears throat> the writer of Song of Solomon begins by saying, what shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? In other words, when someone comes a-knocking, what is going to be our response? How should we respond to her uh, movement towards not just sexual maturity, but healthy sexual expression. Now, I want to answer this in two ways. The first way that we, I want to look at this is the rhetorical version. It's possible to ask the question, and I've heard it asked this way as a rhetorical question, meaning when I say, well, what are we going to do? What I'm really saying is I'm not going to do anything because what can you do, right? That's the rhetorical version. Well, what are we going to do? I would suggest that more so than ever, we cannot say, ah, she'll be fine. The primary source of learning uh, about sexuality today is through the media for most kids. It's through the media. It's through what they're watching um, and through what they're seeing in the online environment. There's a couple of challenges with this. Number one, when you're viewing, uh, when you're viewing uh, video, uh, your brain is actually in a different mode than if you're having a conversation with someone. Uh, your brain goes into its called sometimes passive receptive, meaning it's taking in without critically thinking about, which is why it's relaxing to watch a movie, right? Because you're not critically processing, you're just taking it in. And so the way that the brain engages media creates some challenges, and then a, there's across the board or agreement on this point that sexualized media produces, encourages, facilitates unhealthy sexual behaviors. <clears throat> One of my favorite research quotes ever, University of Chicago, uh, they've actually updated this, they've done this study twice, the largest uh, national study on uh, Americans and their sexual habits that's ever been conducted. So it was a longitudinal study. They stayed with people over a period of time and they asked them a whole sort of bank of questions about uh, 
their sex lives, basically. Like, what does it look like regarding like whether you've lived with one person or you've had multiple partners, whether you're married or not. And then they also, in that same study, tried to gauge contentment and happiness. This is not a faith-based study. Uh, and this was the summary of the findings of what was called the National Health and Social Life Survey. The public image of sex in America bears virtually no relationship to the truth. Isn't that fascinating? The public image, meaning what you see put out there, bears virtually no relationship to the truth of what's actually going on. Virtually no relationship between the two. All of the messages out there about what produces contentment, about what produces long-lasting happiness, all of those messages, most of them are the opposite of what truly produces contentment and happiness. Now, regardless of what direction you go with that, it should at least make you slightly suspicious of some of the messages that we see, right? It is the blind leading the blind. Well, what are we to do? The reality is that the media's depiction of teenage sexuality is a representation of the minds of the adults who produce that material. It is not a realistic representation of what's going on with a teen. I remember uh, in a health class in high school, my, I was a freshman, I was a young freshman, I was like 13, and uh, the health teacher saying, based on research, a guy thinks about sex every, once every 30 seconds. And I remember thinking, man, I better get up to speed here. I'm like falling behind. <laughs> once every 30 seconds? <laughs> and yet, these kinds of messages sort of push a reality into the lives of teenagers that is not necessarily consistent with who they are or their needs or their process of maturation. We don't need to trust it all, right? We need to, uh, we, we do not say, well, what are you gonna do? No, there's a proactive version. There's a proactive version of answering the question, not rhetorically, well, what are we gonna do, but proactively, what are we going to do? Song of Solomon, uh, 8 verse 9, if she is a wall, we will build on her battlements of silver. But if she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. <laughs> now, I, I hadn't really scrutinized those two descriptions, and I was reading uh, someone recently who was talking about those. I kind of just took it as like two different ways of saying that we'll protect her. <laughs> I read one commentator who suggested that the one is, if she is a wall, which means totally closed and disinterested, then we're going to put pretty decorations on her. But if she's a door, we're going to lock that door down. <laughs> I could buy that. <laughs> Two parents. It is upon us 
both uh, for our own children and if you're in a role where you are influencing young people. It is upon us to build defenses that will protect until the appropriate time. Now, I want to address a couple of, uh, these are real comments that I've heard over the years in regards to the parental role of protecting. I want to address these comments. Uh, these are not hypotheticals. I've had these conversations, so I want to address these and then offer some insight from the Word. The first comment I've heard is, I don't want to overprotect my kids. I don't want them out of touch with reality. When I moved into adulthood, I was totally clueless and it was not healthy. I understand the concern about overprotecting, and I want to deal with that a little bit. We'll deal with that as we continue. But uh, in, in the concern for overprotecting, there is also a danger of underprotecting. And if you think about this in other terms of training, parental training, right? I have trained my children to use firearms. But I, I give them permission and autonomy in that at a rate that is consistent with the threat of danger in that, right? So I don't say, here's the gun, here's the guidelines, go outside and hopefully you make it home for dinner. No, there's, there's some thoughtfulness. Have you, seen, have you seen that, the clip of John Wayne teaching the boy how to swim? Anyone know what I'm talking about? What do you mean he don't know how to swim? And he throws him in the lake. There are some things where uh, there, there are some things where the risk is so high that we say, well, we want to be cautious, we want to be careful. We don't want to blind them to the reality that they will face immediately after leaving our home. But we're going to put some appropriate boundaries in place. This is what I talked about three weeks ago. Remember, uh, to the young man, do not be naive. Don't be naive to parents. Don't be naive. I've heard people express, I don't want my kids to feel weird or out of place. Romans 12, 1, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. I actually want my kids to feel weird and out of place. I don't want them embracing, without critical thinking, the overwhelming messages that are coming their way. It's okay if for a period of time your kid has to sort through what it looks like to live differently in a world that lives the same, and you can be with them in navigating that tension. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't look like everyone else. And address your fear of not looking like everyone else. Do not be conformed. Lastly, if I tell my kids no, I will only strengthen their appetite for it. And I would say yes and no. Um, Romans 5 talks about how when the law was made known, it actually increases transgression, right? When I'm told, hey, you can't do this, all of a sudden I go, well, wait a second, what if I want to do that? There is that effect, and yet, telling your kid no 
along with a careful explanation as to why can be very effective. To prepare and protect in the time frame of development is fundamentally disciple-making. Proverbs 6.20, My son, observe the commandments of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. The key through the wisdom literature, and this is one of the major themes throughout all of the wisdom literature, the key is that through teaching, values are made explicit. Did you know, and I've, I've looked at research on this just in the last couple of years, that implicit values are only uh, poorly transferred. By implicit values, I mean parents can hold a certain value, but if that value is never explained, it's really a gamble as to whether kids will pick up that value. Values made explicit. This is why we do what we do. These are the benefits to following this path. The truth is we don't reliably influence what we cannot confidently discuss. Sexuality is one of the primary themes of the wisdom literature. We will read through the book of Proverbs, chapter after chapter after chapter of a father saying, listen, there's some things you need to know. There's some things we want to tell you. There's some things to watch out for. It's involvement. It's values made explicit through teaching. It's taking those things that are dear to me, that are consistent with the wisdom of God, and laying them out there in front of my kids and saying, this is why we live the way that we live. I had a conversation this last week. In fact, the timing of this was not planned, but I had a conversation this last week with uh, Anna Meredith and Connor Schmidt, uh, who work at the rec room, and they oversee the sex ed uh, health curriculum for the public schools. It's a fascinating conversation. And I asked the two of them this question. I said, what would be your uh, biggest criticism that you would direct towards faith communities and the topic of sexuality. And they both agreed. They said a lack of communication. There needs to be better and more communication because all three of us agree that hands down, parents are the single greatest influence, right? And yet implicitly held values are not very... Uh, consistently transferred. In having these conversations, um, there's a book here. I've taken a couple principles from this. I'll recommend it to you. It's called A Chicken's Guide to Talking Turkey with Your Kids About Sex. It's kind of a long title, I'm sorry. Uh, it's by Dr. Kevin Lehman and Kathy Bell. Uh, basically, uh, this is a great resource just to get some ideas about 
not just how to approach those conversations, but what kinds of things to cover. He talks about gauging developmental appropriateness for certain kinds of conversations. But one of the principles that's in this book, which I found to be really helpful, is that he said it's possible to be specific without being personal. In other words, it's possible to have a conversation where I talk very specifically about something pertaining to sexuality without saying, last night your mom and I, let me tell you, it even made you awkward. <laughs> That's being personal. There is a place in the context of those conversations to retain what is personal and private and yet be specific to be educational, to guide as a disciple maker, to guide my children into truth on these topics. We no longer live in a time and place where I can choose entirely what my kids are exposed to. I was exposed to sexually explicit material when I was eight years old. My neighbor took me down behind our apartment complex, pulled a magazine out of the dumpster and said, hey, check this out. It never occurred to me as an eight-year-old that people took their clothes off. We live in a time where the average age of exposure is eight years old. We must be proactive. We must be careful teachers who are articulating God's design, who are extending wisdom to our kids. To teens, really quickly, running out of time. <laughs> to the teens in the room, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. Flee it. Run away. I don't think you heard me. Run away. Get out. As soon as you see everyone losing their frontal lobe capacity, get out. Run for your life. When someone says, hey, check this out, and they're about to show you something on their phone, and then they do a double take over their shoulder before they show you, run. Flee immorality. Get away from it. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Remember, the appetites of the flesh are at war many times with the soul. Make no space for it. When you find yourself in trouble, when you find yourself unsure, here's a line that I would offer you, that you could you can quote me on this to your parents or to your mentors. Considering the fact that my rational capacities of my frontal lobe are not quite fully operational, what do you think would be the wise decision in this circumstance? <laughs> Ask for help. Reach out. Have a conversation. Invite the worship team up. God's design for sexuality is good. His intentions are good. 
If I was to say what I think would be one of my most significant criticisms of the way that faith communities have addressed this subject, it is that it has often primarily addressed as a set of prohibitions, which our sexuality is not. Our sexuality is so fundamental to who we are, and it is a set of invitations. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians. Colossians 2, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. And then he says this, but there no value against fleshly indulgence. He says, I understand that by saying no, 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 and being very hard even on yourself, right? No, 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 no. He says, I understand that there's an appearance of wisdom in that. You must be very uh, serious about it. And he says, and yet that doesn't help people overcome. Saying no with greater conviction is not the key to spiritual maturity. What is then? He continues on in chapter 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if he is in you, if you have Christ's spirit in you, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. He says, listen, if you want to equip someone to overcome, to flee that which is evil and destructive, and run towards that which is good. Train others to look to Christ. Develop and build in your heart a superior affection for walking with God that becomes so powerful in you, so great a motivator in you that those other things are no longer powerful in their temptation. Don't focus on the wrong. Look to what is good and go after it. And you begin by looking to Christ and going after him. <clears throat> if you are young and single and you're in this room, I'm gonna give you one piece of advice is you examine candidates for your future marriage relationship. Look for someone that above all loves Christ. Because that, more than anything else, will translate into all of the goodness in regards to your sexual relationship that God intends. It's his design and it is good. I'm going to go into a time of worship. I know this is an area of your life for some of you, and I said this last week, I'll say it again. I know that this is an area of your life where many experience shame. There's no condemnation here. We're all on the same footing with Christ, and that is absolutely dependent upon him. And if you have entrusted yourself to him, if you have by faith 
committed yourself to him, you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift. You're okay with God. And from that place, now we're just learning how to walk it out, right? To fully realize all the benefits that he has made available. It's the gospel and it's good news. Would you stand with me? We're going to come before the Lord as his people, praise him and his goodness. We do that a couple of ways. Uh, We praise him through uh, singing, through worship. Uh, We have some prayer partners over here that will be available for you. If you would like prayer for any reason, uh, they would love to join with you in that. Uh, We have offering receptacles you can give as part of your worship, and then we also have communion. The communion, the bread and the cup, is that continual, uh, continual reminder that I have no life in and of myself, but Christ lives in me. Amen? Let's come before the Lord together. So in instructing and teaching and discipling, it's not necessary to be personal, but it is appropriate to be specific. And yet I would say it would be a mistake for us to think that there's nothing personal involved, right? In our sexuality, it is intimately personal. If it's anything, it's personal. The investments you make in your sexuality, the rewards of those will be personal beyond your wildest dreams. You can't imagine. And yet the same thing is true for the risks that we take and the compromises that we make. Those two can be so devastatingly personal to ourselves and to those that we love, our spouses, our children, our family, our community. It's personal, which is why it's so important, as strange as it may sound, to bring Christ into your sexuality, and more specifically, Christ on the cross. So that Christ on the cross will remind you in your sexuality as you explore that, as you establish that, as you develop that, that Christ on the cross will remind you of the value of sacrifice, of honoring covenant. He will remind you of the great potential of forgiveness and restoration and invitation. Amen. So, uh, so appreciate the message this morning, Aaron. If you're somebody who is uh, in the habit of, you, you already signed up and are receiving the, the uh, church-wide emails, you'll know that you get one every week. Uh, be watching your, your inbox this week. Uh, Aaron has some extra resources he'll make available to you through that avenue. If you're not yet signed up to receive those emails, you can do that after service at the information table and uh, so that you can have those resources available to you. I also want to remind you as you go that today from 1 to 3 at Captain's Coffee is our open house celebrating and kind of also just an opportunity to reinvest in this great ministry, Safe Families for Children. It's been such a blessing to so many and will be into the future. You're going to want to be a part of it. All right. Well, the Lord bless you. Next week we are uh, moving on from Song of Solomon. Uh, to the book of Esther, and we're going to begin by learning about uh, the great value and opportunity of enjoyment. So that'll be fun. Lord bless you. We'll see you next week. You're dismissed.